hearing all these announcements about illness and suffering and various things that do not sound good to us is very sobering. We just heard a sermonette or a broadcast by Mr. Armstrong as the sermonette here in Rock Hill a few minutes ago, and it was very powerful and very strong, having to do with prophecies that are occurring, and uh, as was commented here, it was right up to date, even though it was given many, many years ago. And had that sermonette been played, perhaps I wouldn't need to speak, because uh, the sermon today flows along the same lines in many respects, and some of the same subjects he was covering, although from a different direction. The question today is, was and is Jesus Christ a Christian? Where would he and his thinking fit in in the churches today? Would he be a Methodist if he were here? Would he be a Catholic? Would he fit somewhere or anywhere in the greater church of God today? As we know the greater church of God. Today we'll examine his reactions in various situations and see where his thinking would fit in modern Christendom and see if his thinking fits together with some of our thinking. I want to go to set the stage to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. He had to be careful what he preached, lest getting into certain things, it would cancel out what Christ was trying to do. And to extrapolate a little view from that, and I think it probably fits okay, is what seems logical, or what seems to be common sense regarding health, regarding wealth, and life, does not always serve God's purpose nor does it always serve the cross of Christ. Sometimes in using human wisdom or our way of thinking, we might come across purpose through the sacrifice of Christ and his purpose in life for us. I think we'll see that as we go on here. Let's pick a subject. Let's go with an easy one first. Homosexuality and gay rights. Faced with an increasing number of this, the churches today are beginning to say, well, it's okay to have gay ministers. And certainly it's okay to have gay or homosexual people in the congregation. Hawaii is, has either now okayed or is in the process of legalizing same-sex marriage. That's a big controversy in other states. They're considering it. And sitcoms are absolutely full of it. To be laughed about, to be accepted as the warp and the wolf of American life. Emphasize the warp. Our national leaders talk about villages raising our children. It's part of the movement away from the family. I'll tell you, if parents haven't done the job by the time the village gets hold of them, it's too late. How to save them from the village is our biggest challenge as parents today in this world. God is family. He absolutely deplores and despises perverted sex. He honors and appreciates and promotes marital sex. The perverted sex he hates. Now is that, where would Christ fit in Christianity today on that basis? In the churches that are preaching gay rights? No, I don't think you'd find him there. I think we can go back to Sodom and Gomorrah and one loud whoop. And that's enough said on that subject. You can go to Romans 1 to show that he also thinks the same way in the New Testament if you want. And whether they want to argue it's genetic or environmental or whatever, really made no difference in God's judgment of the subject, did it? If it was the gene pool, he pretty well erased that for a while, too. So there's no excuse for that. I don't think you and I, probably, most of you hearing this today would have a problem with this. Um, I hope not. What about John 8, verses 3 through 11? Here you have a place. What would happen today if there was a man, a woman, either way, didn't matter which way, were going to be surprised by all their friends at a surprise party? 
So they come to this lady's house. They use the lady in this case because it fits John 8. And all her friends are there and they knock on the door and they fling the door open because one close friend had a key and they say, surprise! And she's laying on the couch with a man that is not her husband. What would happen in modern Christianity? Well, it would be embarrassing, I suppose, probably even yet today in American society, it would still be embarrassing. But the churches would say, well, it's one of those things, and they'd all get nervous and leave, probably. But there's something that would occur, and that is that if that woman's name was brought up 20 years later, 40 years later, what she had done would be said in hushed tones, because she was an adulteress. That's the way man thinks. Even though they might not approve of what she was doing, in today's world you can't say even that, but that would be talked about behind the scenes. Now how did Christ handle that? Is that the way he thought? What about when they brought this evidence to him that this woman had been taken in the very act? He didn't say anything. He didn't chew her out. Didn't put her out of the church. Well, there wasn't one yet, but I mean, he didn't tell them to stay away from her. He told her to go and sin no more. In other words, forget it, go on, move on with your life, don't do it anymore. But what did he do? He wrote something in the sand that shut them up permanently. He didn't want it talked about anymore. And what he wrote there, we're not sure of, but it sure shut them up. And I don't think any of them even ever brought it up again. Is there a little bit of thought there for us today, a little instruction about each other's sins? And the problem we might run across as we deal with one another. A little bit in the same vein. What if someone in the church lied? And maybe they'd pledged money for a particular purpose and then held back some of that money, didn't give all that they said they would give. What would be the reaction? Well, Christianity today would sit them down maybe and counsel them, talk about the problem and tell them, well, you know, you really did pledge this and you should give it, and uh, we can't do anything about it if you don't, but in the interest of Christianity, be nice to give it. Perhaps Peter might have approached it that way, as much better as I've read about Peter, maybe he wouldn't have either. Maybe they were at least in the fellowship because of what they had done with the rest of the Christ reacted in somewhat the same vein as the woman takes the adultery. He said, Go and sin no more. He used a little different message to the cross. But the rest of the church heard in fear. Now that would be, I think, today probably considered overreacting in our society. He wouldn't just really fit in in the churches and the politics of the day, would he? Was that kind of thing? Lying is probably a product of intelligence and lack of faith in what it was. Christ acts Christian, perhaps you consider this as a lesson, because Christ may have in the last day of getting his point across that he's gone here in the end. Who knows? The president of the actually a lot of presidents of the Bible it up for dramatic things starting to happen before Christ returns. What about the money changers in the temple? What if someone started misusing funds or something within the church, selling their products? I guess all the churches have their products, just about. Even in the church of God today, the great church of God, you see that again to happen in some way. Well, what is the church? Well, you get a court order, you have a decision made that these people should not be here doing what they're doing, and you give them 30 days to wrap up their business, and to cease and desist, and all that political process. How does Christ think? Same way he did the Old Testament. He said, cut down the road. He broke them out of there. No dealing out of this about it. He was a good thing. What a good reaction. And yet we want to be calm. 
mighty employed in this lady. But his initial reaction was not what we would think it could be, was it? And maybe we would have been satisfied again, but we still thought, you know, he was racist. We might have still had a little thought in the back of our mind. Matthew 10, verse 34, where he said, I will bring, I will bring peace to the soul. We have many today who feel that we should be unified as a church, that we should be working very, very hard at unity. Well, it is good that people be unified, isn't it? Under right conditions. But are we thinking like Christ is thinking right now? If we were seeking with all our heart unity, when there doesn't seem to be any around. Now let's consider. Christianity's got a big ecumenical movement coming on. And even in the greater church of God, we have those who are fighting very hard for ecumenity. We all need to get together. I ask you how. <laughs> how is that possible? There's no human way we can bring unity and harmony in the churches of God today, is there? I don't know of any way. You see, maybe we're not perceiving what Christ is doing. Right now, he has sent a sword upon the church. We need to be doing what could be being done during the time a sword is sent. That is, repenting, changing, getting our thinking in line with Christ's thinking. Because if he sent a sword, he had a very good reason for it. And pestilence and famine. Ezekiel 5, all over again, spiritually speaking. Our job is to be repenting, and God will bring unity when He wants unity, not when we think it should come. You can quote scriptures about unity, but that is now. We might be found to be fighting Christ. We might also begin to get the attitude that, well, He's weak. He can't seem to bring unity. Or He's unchristian. Is He Christian or is He unchristian? We could get an attitude of where is God when you need him. If we're not careful in our thinking. I'll tell you where he is. He's right here. He's waiting for us to change our thinking and get in line with his thinking. Then we will begin to have unity. Each has his own idea. The calendar is a good example. The fruits of what's happening right now over the calendar will show this. We can't be unified as long as each of us figures he's got to make his own calendar because God doesn't, isn't smart enough to figure out that the calendar that unified the whole church under Herbert Armstrong isn't any good. Now, we were unified for many, many years under that man, weren't we? And used the Hebrew calendar. But what splits and divides? Everybody making his own calendar. Everybody leaning to his own knowledge and his own understanding. You see, that's where 1 Corinthians one seventeen could apply. We think, well, through the wisdom of words and technicalities, this calendar is not right, but this one that I'm making up is. And we can make the cross of Christ of none effect by using what seems to be wise to us, and we're not getting in line with the thinking God was using when we were unified under Herbert Armstrong. As a result, we have a problem that is basically insoluble. Until Christ himself takes a hand. What about Malachi 1, verses 2 through 3 and Romans 9, 13, where God said he hated Esau. John brought this up in a sermon some months back. And I personally have heard quite a few people that have given him some flack over that. I don't know whether he's heard it or not, but I have. Because in the Christian world today, we say God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Now, is that a correct statement, or is it not? There comes a point where you can't separate the sin from the sinner. And that is the point that Esau had reached. Read it in Hebrews. He was recalcitrant, unrepentant, bitter, totally against God. All John did was quote the scriptures that were clearly read to make the point. That God does not love everyone alive. And that upsets some people. Now, who's right, Christ or them? Can anyone put that 
statement that he made there about God heated Esau in plainer language for me so I can understand it in English. There's not much to equivocate about, is there? He just said, flat out, God hated Esau. Now, is your opinion better than God's? Do you understand more? Do you think God is a little unfair in what he said there? Is our view of God and our emotion more correct than Christ? Or is there something wrong with our thinking? Maybe we don't have enough understanding yet, you see. Christ might not fit in a lot of churches if he said he hated somebody. <laughs> now, it's okay if they hate, but they're not going to preach it. Luke 12, verses 1 through 12. Luke 12. Here he's talking about fear and fear of the uh, Pharisees and various others. He says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. He says we are more valuable than anything else to him, sparrows or anything else. But sometimes we felt we should speak quietly and move carefully because we might bring persecution and trouble on ourselves and on the church. Boy, you should have heard that sermonette by Herbert Armstrong we heard on paper a little while ago about doctors. A lot of our people would be scared to death to say anything on a nationwide broadcast like that. Herbert Armstrong was no reed shaken in the wind. Some people say he didn't preach and teach against a lot of things and that uh, he didn't really ever say anything. Boy, you should have heard that. So is it valid that we speak quietly and try to hide from the world? No. Matthew 10, verse 27, he says, What I, what I put in your ear, you shout from the housetop. He didn't say to hide and fear that we'll be martyred. He does tell us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But he also says to fear not and not be afraid. Should we compromise and shut up because we're afraid something is going to happen to us? I don't think Christ thinks that way. What if they hate us? What if they try to kill us? It comes with a program. Are you afraid of somebody that can kill your poor old body? There are days you probably wish you could crawl in the grave and pull the dirt in over you anyway. No, fear him who is able to say, this one lives forever, or this one's out of here. That's the one to fear. What about child rearing? Christianity, society, and psychology today say, do not thank them, do not let them suffer guilt or shame, etc. Love them only, don't hurt their little psyches, and harm their self-esteem. And some in the church have adopted this approach. Jesus loves me, and just as I am, Lord. Let's all be sweet, and let's not make any waves. What does Christ say? Esteem others better than yourself. The whole psychology bit of self-esteem and how we've got to esteem ourselves. So good. Got a problem here. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. In verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. What I think, and the way my emotions feel, are the correct way to rear children. Even if it diametrically opposes what God says. Something, if we think that, is fundamentally wrong with our thinking. We react emotionally on these issues, but what about what Christ thinks? What does Christ say? I won't read all of these for sake of time, but I will quote them to you and read them. I mean, I won't turn to them all. I'll read them to you. Proverbs 10.13, A rod is to the back of him that is void of understanding. 26.3, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the ass, and a rod for the fool's back. 
13.24, He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him often. 22.15, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. 23.13-14, Withhold not correction from the child, for if you beat him with the rod, he shall not die. Not a club, I said, a rod. There's a difference. 29.15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. Isaiah 10.5, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger, beat us with a rod, is what Christ says prophetically. He's going to send the Assyrian on us with a rod. Does he believe in it? He's going to use it on us. I think it's spiritually occurring to us as we speak. Hebrews 12, 5-13 shows that he's the same yesterday, today, and in the New Testament as well. Whereas you love the chase the son, you're chasing it. And he used the rod there. I don't know how you could put that in plainer English. <laughs> There's an awful lot of weight there. Now, I won't go into how you use it and the misuses of it and so on today. That's a different time, different place. But uh, I want to make the point that our thinking is not always the way God's is. And He wouldn't fit in in a congregation who did not believe in spanking children. All the kids are going to love me. What about number 16? You know the story of Korah. All Korah did was criticize the leadership, saying all the people are holy, and our opinion is just as good as yours is. That's all he did. That's pretty common in America today in Christianity. Fire the preacher. <laughs> Getting common in the church of God today. Fire the preacher. Or go off on your own, or whatever. All Korah did was say, my opinion is just as good as yours, and all the people are holy. Who needs ordained anyhow? All the people have the Holy Spirit. We hear it today. Now, what did God do? Now, this probably wouldn't meet Christian criteria either. Just open the earth, wham, on Korah and all of his followers and all their families and all their oxen and their asses and their beds and everything. Gone! Now, what would be, you'd think, a Christian reaction to this? Next day, you'd see all these people repenting and saying, Moses, I know you're of God. We will follow you to the ends of the earth. And what was the reaction? Next day, the people said, Moses, you've killed all these people. Now, Moses opened the ground, right? Come on! Where is common sense and logical thinking here? And God said that Moses and Aaron, stand back, boys. I'm going to wipe them all out. And he intended to. They intervened, and he only killed 14,700 of them. Because of what? They're thinking. <laughs> it reminds me of the story of a man and a woman walking down the street, and here was this girl over there in a mini skirt whose blouse is about to meet the skirt in the middle. And he looked around as she walked by and was following her down the street and his wife just whacked him alongside the head. He picked himself up and says, why did you do that? You're stinking thinking. <laughs> he didn't do anything wrong, did he? But she could say, see, he had stinking thinking. And she reacted. I don't know that I recommend it on a daily basis. <laughs> on the other hand, he might be <laughs> Of course, the girl had nothing to do with that either in what she was wearing. If you wonder about that, read Isaiah 3. Is it okay to come to church in many churches with cleavage showing? I've heard that that's beginning to be practiced in different places, even in God's church. Creates problems for men. It creates problems when the wives don't like it. 
Think about it. Is our thinking a little thinking? <laughs> you know? We want God's blessing and peace and joy, but maybe something's wrong. Now let's go to uh, Matthew 8. Matthew 8. And verse 16. When the even was come, they brought to him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed the sick, and took uh, their infirmities, healed them. Can he still do that? Can we trust him in his sovereignty? to do just what he says he can do and will do? Is he our healer? He says those that are sick need a physician. Does that mean we ought to run to the physicians of this world? Who is our physician? He tells us, Psalm 103, I heal all your diseases. Exodus 15:26. he says he heals our diseases. 1 Peter 2:21. by his stripes we are healed. Now, this doesn't fit most Christian thinking, and sometimes it doesn't fit with our thinking because sometimes we are fearful and afraid. And Christ said, will I find faith on the earth? If he does, where is he going to find it? What does our healer, our physician, tell us to do when we get sick? And does this match your thinking? First Timothy 5, 21, 3. Maybe this is the one you expect me to read. Drink a little wine for your stomach and your often infirmities, not just your stomach. Does that make sense to the Christians of today? Would Christ fit in with that kind of advice? What he says, we won't get into how much is a little at this point. He also tells us in James 5, and this is the one you expected, verses 14 through 16, be anointed in the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Do we believe that, brethren? Can we believe that? Or do we find other methods? You know, when it gets down to your body and your health and whether you're going to live and die, it gets critical, doesn't it? And it's okay if you've got a cold to be anointed. <laughs> because it'll go away in three to seven days. And you can give God the credit or whoever you want to. But when it's something more serious, then it requires faith. Then it requires belief and trust. John 11, verse 1. A lot of people would disagree with this one, just off the bat. This is the case where uh, Lazarus got sick. And I won't go through the whole story, but uh, let's see, let's go down. Let me pick it up here. Oh, my eye's not falling on it. I didn't write down the... Okay, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. One of his best friends was sick unto death, and he didn't call immediately. He didn't gather up his skirts and go running. He stayed right where he was for two days. Can you imagine that? Does that sound Christian to you? Somebody's sick and you just say, okay. <laughs> He told them, it's not unto death, don't worry about it. Now you can say, well, that was Christ saying that. With us, it's a little different. We're not Christ. Well, we're not. But on the other hand, I wanted to show you something. He didn't call for public or private prayer or even get up tight, did he? He just stayed where he was for two days. He had his own agenda. Remember that song we sang years and years ago that took over... Almost the whole world. <laughs> He's got the whole world in his hand. Went on and on. He's got the whole wide world in his hand. He's got you and me, brother, in his hand. We all sang it. It had a catchy tune. It had beautiful lyrics. 
The whole world sang it, but heard it, and loved it, and it stayed on the charts for a long, long time, and it's probably still being sung in churches here and there. How many people believe it? Catchy. You can sing it. Sounds good. But when the crunch comes, who believes it? Sing and clap and sing. Do we believe it? What if he doesn't heal us immediately? What if he waits a couple of days before he even pays any attention to it? It's in his sovereignty. I gave my life to Jesus Christ, as Paul said. Whether I live or whether I die, I belong to him. It's no big deal. I expect to live a long time personally because it's taken me longer to overcome than most. But maybe there's a certain point at where Christ says, you've overcome enough, you can die now. And in the next split second of your consciousness, you will be in the kingdom of God. Wow. Do we believe in his sovereignty? Is our life in his hands or is it not? Are we responsive to Christ? Matthew 8, verses 21 through 22. A fellow came to Christ and said, What do I need to do? He said, Follow me. He says, Well, let me bury my father first. Now, most of us would think that's a big event in our lives, wouldn't we? If our human father died, the, the only thing that would be on our mind would be, I need to take care of the arrangements, I need to go to the funeral home, I need to find a place to bury. Uh, we got to get a funeral figured out. We got to get somebody to preach a service, and, and we got to call all the relatives. And we got to have food here. The neighbors will bring food, I guess. There will be a lot of people, and, and all these arrangements are on our mind because that is the big thing in our lives at that point. What did Christ say? Let the dead bury their dead. Come and follow me. Are we that tuned? Or is that callous on his part? Was he being Christian there? Doesn't sound good. I mean, it would make common sense, going back to 1 Corinthians 1.17, and the wisdom of this world, to say, sure, take three days. You can catch up with me at Capernaum. But that's not what he says. It's vital to Christ that we follow him now. What did Paul say? Redeem the time. Don't waste time. Follow me. You may be dead tomorrow or today. I was joking when I said it looks like I'll live a long time. I might not. I'd better get ready now. You see. Sounds hard and callous. But if Christ says go, we go, don't we? Otherwise, the cross of Christ is made of none effect. Now, how would you react if a young man came to you and said, I am having serious problems with my brother. Dad and Mom both died clunk, clunk right in front of me. And my brother is trying to take the entire inheritance. What should I do? What would be your reaction? Well, you better get yourself a good lawyer. You better be sure you obtain that which is yours. What did Christ say? He said, don't dumb in Luke twelve, thirteen to fifteen here. He said, Don't bring this to me to judge. Why do you want me to get involved in this? It's just a physical thing. <laughs> so what? What did he say? Beware of covetousness. He just dismissed the whole thing. Oh, your brother doesn't want to give you the money? Okay. You don't need to be covetous anyway. A man's life does not equate to the possessions which he has. <laughs> That's not common sense, is it? Not even Christian to let that brother take all that money. That's what Christ said. The wealth isn't of any importance. Why are you concerned about it? Now, that's a little hard for you and me to swallow. Come on, let's be honest. you got an inheritance coming. You want it, don't you? 
Well, I want my spiritual one, but as far as the physical one, if my brothers and sisters are going to fight over it, let them fight. i got other things to be doing. And that's the way I need to be thinking. What did he say in Matthew six nineteen to 21? I mean, here's plain English. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's actually instruction, is it not? You don't want that money anyway. We'll, we'll touch on this some more a little later on. Luke 11. I'll turn to this one. Luke 11 and verse 46. And he said, Woe to you lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and you yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! Verse 52, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in you hindered. They do. They take the keys of knowledge away from a situation, don't they? They try to find technicalities, ways around something. Logic, logic common sense in that case, and judgment they bypass and don't even care about as long as they can, by a technicality, get their way. Christ doesn't like that. Luke 10, verse 25. Follow this a little further. Um, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) A lawyer, believe it or not. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And And he answered, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered right. This do, and you shall live. But the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? He brings up a technicality. He's trying to sort it out so that he doesn't have very many neighbors to take care of. That's his whole point. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves and stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. <laughs> and by chance there came a certain priest, and he passed on, and likewise the Levite, and he passed on on the other side. And then a Samaritan came in and bound him, poured in oil and, and wine, and set him on his beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Verse 36, Which now of these three think you was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. In other words, your neighbor is whoever you have an opportunity to help. Whoever you run across, wherever they might be, or whatever race or anything else, you help them. They're your neighbor. That, that, that left it pretty wide, didn't it? I'm sure this, the lawyer didn't like that because he wanted to, only wanted to help a few. But what about us? We're in a society that makes jokes about lawyers, but boy, do we run to them. I mean, when it's us that's in a pinch, then we forget our lawyer joke and go find one. That's in Congress, isn't it? I didn't say in Congress. <laughs> it's there, too. Now, what about our finances? We touched on money a little bit earlier. Let's hit this one for a little bit here. What do our financial analysts say about retirement? They tell us we ought to have stocks and bonds and real estate and 401ks and PO plans and on and on it goes. We really worry about it today. What am I going to do when I get old? How will I be taken care of? Where's my security? Let's go to open this to Luke 12. We're right here in the neighborhood. And uh, verse 22. Well, he's talking about... uh, the abundance of things he possesses here. We just quoted up further or earlier in the chapter. Verse 21, Christ says, So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Sell what you have and give alms. You read the whole thing. Just sell what you have. Give it to the poor. Nowhere does the Bible talk about retirement, does it? I haven't found it. Maybe it's in there. Herbert Armstrong just snorted at retirement. There's nothing in there about a retirement plan. Blessed is the servant found so doing, Christ said. 
We expect to work up until the day we die. Maybe we get so debilitated we can't, but God doesn't want us thinking about retirement. Why do so many people retire and then die within six months? do you think that might be? I have a theory. And that is that they've been talking about retirement and thinking about retirement for so long that they have subconsciously told their body that when you reach 65, we're stopping, baby. So when they reach 65 and go to the closet and drag out their fishing pole, they fall over and die. Because they've been telling their body we're quitting at 65. You don't see that happening with a lot of people who are very, very active. And maybe they are going to quit that particular job they have, but they have a hundred plans of things they want to do because they want to live. When you start talking about retirement, you're talking about not wanting to live anymore and preparing to die. And God does not want us thinking about dying. He wants us to be thinking about living, doesn't He? Living forever. Maybe dying for a while. But we need to be so excited about living God's way and finding joy and peace in it that we'd want to live and not die. We get tired and lazy sometimes. I already hear the yabbits coming. When would God have us rest on our leaves? As Zephaniah one twelve says. And what is God going to do to those who rest on their leaves or on their laurels or talk about what a wonderful job they did when they were in, in industry? He will destroy their goods and their houses, he says, if they lean on their leaves. The Apostle John was still preaching, writing, and prophesying in his 90s. He didn't retire. Now, Peter and Paul and some of those people retired early. But it wasn't of choice, necessarily. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, one came and said, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said, Why call you me good? There is none good but one. If you will enter the life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which? And he started naming ten commandments. The young man said to him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Notice he left out one that we commonly leave out. The last one. Covetousness. Jesus said to him, If you will be perfect, go and sell that you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Them fighting words to most people. <laughs> sell it all. Give it away. Come and follow me. Does that sound like a retirement program to you? doesn't to me. Does it even fit our way of thinking? Your financial analyst would have a heart attack if he heard me say that. Now, am I standing here saying today that all of you need to go get rid of all of your retirement plans? I don't know. I'm just trying to make you think. I'm trying to make you think how Christ thinks because he wouldn't fit in most churches with this kind of reasoning and he wouldn't fit in most of our minds with this kind of reasoning. And maybe our thinking is thinking. Consider it. Scripture. I didn't make it up. Get mad at me if you want to. All I did was read the Scripture. But when the young rich man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Covetousness was his problem. Now, of course, you're just laying up for a rainy day and you don't have covetousness. I understand that. <laughs> but this fellow had a problem. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, Verily I say to you that a rich man shall hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. That's scary, isn't it? Because the American way is to be rich. That's the great American dream is to become wealthy. That shouldn't even be our goal. Christ said, lay not up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And if you do get rich, it's going to be like straining a camel through a needle's eye. <laughs> camel souffle, or what do, you, what do you call it? Not souffle, but camel soup's good enough. Camel soup? Camel soup. Okay, let's move on. I don't know that I even want to be rich. I think I'd be jeopardizing myself. And we've already quoted Matthew 16, lay not a treasure. What about indebtedness? That's another an article in the paper this morning about indebtedness in America. Deuteronomy 15.6 and 28.12. He told the nation of Israel, you can be a lender, but not a borrower. A principle that God laid out for his people Israel at that time. Proverbs 22.7, the borrower was servant to the lender. 2 Kings 4 is a really interesting scripture. Verse 1. I want to turn back to that one quickly. 2 Kings 4. Beginning in verse 1. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. Here's a widow. And you know that your servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take to him my two sons to be bondmen. Now, there's a widow with a problem. Her two sons about to be taken and her husband is gone. And her husband apparently had been in debt. Not a good recommendation, huh? And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in your house? And she said, Your handmaid has not anything in the house save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow you vessels abroad of all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few, a whole bunch. And when you are come in, you shall shut your door upon you and upon your sons, and shall pour out into all those vessels, and you shall set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons, and who, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said to her, There is not a vessel more, and the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt, and live you and your children of the rest. That's the only example I've found so far in the Bible of said to go borrow. And that was to pay debt. Not to go further into debt. No, to borrow money, not and go spend it. No. Man shall live by faith, not by visa. How can you live by faith? When you're, you know, God says, give us this day our daily bread, and you're already spending bread from two years, I mean, two years ahead with your visa card. And how can you pray for daily bread when you've already spent two years from now's bread? And you're paying 16% interest on it or whatever. Doesn't make sense. Nehemiah 5, verse 4. They mortgaged their lands and vineyards and got into trouble. And they had to be delivered from that. Nehemiah had to go to bat for them. Psalm 37, 21. The wicked borrows and pays not again, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. In other words, we should be in a position to give, not be in a position where we have to declare bankruptcy. It's common today, and in fact, it's politically correct. But the way Christ thinks, they wouldn't stand up in the Baptist or Methodist church and tell you this. <laughs> They'd fire the preacher. Matthew 5.42 Give of him that asks of you, and from him that would borrow of you, turn him not away. We can find myriad excuses for turning someone away, can't we? God says to him, money isn't that important. Folks, let's face it. Give it away. Somebody wants it, let them have it. Mr. Armstrong instructed us to simplify our lives, to get out of debt. Did we listen? Will we now? Will we listen to these scriptures? That's all I want to read the scriptures. You know, 
know, we, we can live on deficit spending so we're in Sahak we can't breathe. We should be working our way out of debt according to what I'm reading here and not live by Visa alone. Are we so impatient that we can't live without something until we can afford it? Are we like the world or are we transformed or being transformed? You know? What what is it that you have to have so bad you can't live without it? Washer and dryer? Get a number ten tub in the washboard. If you could find one. <laughs> I mean there are ways. It's probably just about as expensive to go to the laundromat as it is to buy a washer, not quite. But maybe while you saved your money, you could go there. Do we have to be in debt? I don't think so. I think we can get out. Are we thinking like Christ or are we thinking like the covetous of this world who have to have it now and have it our way? McDonald's has made billions off of that very emotion that we have. You know? What was that when they, they say? I can't even think of it. Now their little jingle, I wrote it down. You deserve a break today. You deserve anything you want today. You can go pay for it and we'll take 19% interest on it from now until you pay it off. You deserve it. Man, do you deserve that kind of a burden? Is covetousness as bad as Sabbath breaking? Is it as bad as adultery? Christ just told us that if we are covetous, we can't be in his kingdom. And a rich man is going to have a tough time getting in there. Something to think about. Christ, to me, would not fit in with today's Christianity. He wouldn't be considered a Christian if he were here. I think we've pretty clearly seen that, that his thinking just is not in line with fundamental Protestantism, Catholicism, or even our thinking in many cases. And we're supposedly his people. He says in vain, that is, uselessly and futilely, do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. He's coming soon to rule this world His way, brethren. Let's go to Revelation 19. Let's see how this fits. How is Christ going to be regarded when He comes back? Saddam Hussein is called an international terrorist, terrorist, isn't he? Today. Because he funds terrorizing in other countries. Let's take that one step further. The paper this morning called Bill Clinton an international terrorist. Not in those words, but it said since 1992 we have been, he, is the, he signed the orders to go into Iraq and try to kill Saddam Hussein. And that this latest military action that occurred three days ago interfered with that. And now it's going to take a lot longer to get back in there and kill him. Now, are we international terrorists? That's the way the people in Iraq would look at us. We look at it as international terror when they come bomb our White House. But now when we go bomb theirs, we're doing it for the good of mankind. Whose perspective is correct? <laughs> Depends on which house you're sitting in, I guess. Are we better than they are? Now, who's going to be the next international terrorist? The beast, which is rising. It's going to terrorize all over the world. And then people are just going to love it. Oh, they're rich. And we can go there and we can do business. And this is a worldwide global thing where we can do business in China and Taiwan and Europe and everywhere. And suddenly they won't be looked upon as worldwide terrorists anymore after the United States is defeated. Then suddenly they're going to be the Savior. Depends on your perspective. Of course, the people from the United States then are going to be doing the work that creates the money as slaves. All right, who's the next international terrorist? Revelation 19, 15 through 19. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming back on a white horse with a sword in his hand and blood on his vesture, and he is going to subjugate this world. He is going to wipe out the majority of the population, and they're all going to turn and fight him, saying he's an international terrorist! 
would he fit in? Will they accept him as a Christian? Not on your life they won't. They do not think like Jesus Christ thinks. Do we think like He thinks? Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you which is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, brethren, is not a Christian. Jesus Christ is the Christ. And it is we who must become disciples of and Christians. We have to think like He thinks. And that's my whole point today. Because the world does not agree with the way He thinks. And we do not agree enough the way He thinks. For when we do begin to think like Christ, and we esteem others better than ourselves, and we become humble and contrite and obedient in every way, then He will unite us. Because we will think like He thinks. And that is our duty now, is to come to think like he thinks. And I just touched on some of these. A lot of these scriptures need, I mean, these subjects need a whole sermon. But let's start thinking when we read the scriptures. Does my thinking fit this? Would my reactions be the same reactions he had? Because he is the standard that we must follow. And I turned it around on purpose to see how he just wouldn't fit in with the way things are so that we can turn it back around and say, we must fit him. End of transmission.